This is deep dish, right? Yeah, well, let's get deep. So, so I'm, I'm going deep on both sides. Dr. Jamar Tisby, welcome to the platform. Brother, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I'm glad that you made it here safely. Yeah. Oh, Kentucky, <laughs> no, no. Um, man, I just want to give you a flowers on camera, just the work that you are doing, have done. As a black man, the black man in this work, I know what it takes. Mm. I know a lot of times, you know, you may be the first to jump through the window over a lot of things and people congratulate you, but they don't realize the cuts and the bruises from the glass. <laughs> you had to go through that and glass. Go yes. through that glass. So I want to just acknowledge that and acknowledge you and just give you your flowers. And, man. Because I know it ain't easy. And I know it's days you like, huh, oh, this world makes you say, mm, what am I What am I doing? A lot of days. So, man, yeah. just congratulations on, on just the authorship and podcast and teaching it. Just everything that you do. Unreal. So I just want to give you I appreciate that, brother. Man. Definitely so. Man, I want to get straight into it now. If you don't, if you don't know who Dr. Sisby is, if y'all listen to this, you can just Google. You can just <laughs> Google it. You can go to his whole arc. He's made it super easy for you. But we're gonna we're gonna get straight into the work. Nice. You did some uh, background. Okay. Yeah, we did. Some, we'll get straight into the work. Um, this word justice comes up a lot um, in the work that you do. Um, what does that word mean to you today? Mm -hmm. The word justice. I like to differentiate justice from charity. Okay. Charity is, has the connotation of, it's something nice that we do, mm -hmm. that we're not required to do, but we do it because we're generous or we have extra or additional. Yeah. Justice is not charity. Justice is what you deserve. Mm -hmm. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter one in the image of God and the dignity imbued in us just by existing, yeah. not because of what you do, who you are, what you look like. Yeah. It's just because you're here and you're human that you are owed a certain level of dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. The problem is we don't proportion that equitably. Right. The, the, the good things in life, the opportunities to flourish, mm -hmm. uh, or if you want to put it in political terms, the opportunity for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has never fallen equitably among different people groups. And so what do you do about those imbalances that are due to injustice because of racism or sexism or whatever it is, that's justice. We hear no justice, no peace. That's a, that's a quote we like to, many people like to say on their, on their march for social right, justice. Right, right, right. Change. Um, have we ever experienced justice in this country? Do we actually know what that means and mm. what that looks like? And I'm always curious when there's a unison of people saying no justice, no peace. Mm. I, I know in my heart's apart that that probably means something different than everybody out there. Right, right, right. right. Um, so I always like to wrestle with that question myself. But have we seen, do we know what that looks like in this country, in, Amer in the United States of America, what justice means and what it looks like? And even more specifically as black people, mm -hmm. have we ever experienced justice? Do we know what that looks like? Right. So at the macro level, it's messy. If you, if you look at a whole country, I mean, it's remarkably diverse, right? 50 different states, urban and rural, black and white, rich and poor, all of those things. So to have a blanket statement, yes or no, we've experienced justice. It's not really a good you know, fit or framework in that sense. And a lot of this justice work, we have to look at on a micro level in terms of individual communities, families, people, those kinds of things. 
And so on those levels, yeah, you know, you might have instances where that's possible. I would say though, as a nation, if we are looking at the macro, just from a historical sense, Mm -hmm. there have been fits and starts and mostly missed opportunities. Mm -hmm. So I'm teaching African-American history to my students at Simmons College right now. And we just got uh, moved past the reconstruction era. Which I tell them was our nation's greatest opportunity to truly provide citizenship and equity to black people for the first time in its history because they had just fought a bloody civil war. It's to this day the most, uh, has the most casualties of any war that we've ever fought, including World War II. And we had just, with the 13th Amendment, abolished slavery, except for the exception clause, right? But in that moment, it was all eyes were on these three and a half million black people who had been recently freed. And the question was, where do we go from here? What now? And there were opportunities. So the federal government established what's called the Freedmen's Bureau, which helped start schools, hospitals, helped uh, in court cases, things of that nature. Um, black people were finally had the autonomy to do some of their own things. So they're starting their own businesses. They are going to school. That was a big one. Let's get our education. They even start, we have start our own churches. This is when we get historically black denominations coming up. And so there are moments like that, but I call it a missed opportunity because that was, you know, end of the civil wars, 1865. And then reconstruction really comes to an end by 1877 with the compromise of 1877 that put uh, President Hayes in office. And the compromise with Southerners and Southern uh, voters and politicians was you pull all the U.S. federal troops out of the South and then have so-called home rule, which puts the same plantation owners, the same white power structure back in power over the people who had just recently been freed. So fits and starts, opportunities, certainly the promise, the resources for true justice, but we haven't haven't gotten there. Now, um, break up churches, but as you know, if you look around here in Tennessee, there's <laughs> a church every block. Every block, every block yes. is a church. And this is, I think, always an ongoing conversation, especially as, as black folks, we live back historically, a lot of our many social justice movements, civil rights movements, especially here in Nashville, mm. a lot of it is centered out of Christianity. Absolutely. A lot of churches, those little pillars. Um, so we'll say that's not really the case as much now. Right. Um, and I know you do a lot of work intersecting between Christianity and justice, yep. Christianity and racial justice. Yep. Where are we at today mm, mm. in that intersection? Um, will we help her truly get it back as a stronghold in this generation where the church can once again be a stronghold with people regardless, you know, of, of really regardless of religion? Mm-hmm. You can come and be a place that we like, we try to fight this, this racial injustice together. Right. Um, do we get back to that? Uh, or is it, you know, kind of a separate thing of just of, of faith and, and justice? Right, right, right. I'm so glad you asked that question about, you know, where's the church in justice? Yeah. And can we recover a sense uh, that the church was really deeply involved in it, specifically the black church? Right. Um, so I think our vision of uh, faith and justice and the involvement of Christians has to evolve along with the ways racism has changed over time. So I think part of the issue is when we look at the church and we say, oh, they ain't about nothing, they ain't in it, whatever. We have this frozen in time snapshot 
of the church, like I said, specifically the black church, from the civil rights movement. You're right. Right? Like, 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 like our whole vision of the church and justice is a march with Martin Luther King Jr. right in front and a bunch of, you know, clergy and collars next to him, right? And the, we're like, yeah, that's it. That's what it looked like. Okay, but recognize, again, this is the value of history. History is about context. So what's going on in that era that made those images so powerful? Well, they were confronting a system of segregation. The civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, the main front, we forget this, the main front was to bring down legalized segregation. The main theater, the main area this occurred was the South. There were protests everywhere, right? But the main theater is still the South, which is like Birmingham and Montgomery and Atlanta and uh, the Delta of Mississippi, all, all of that. And they were trying to say, hey, we can enter the front door. We can ride in the, in the front of the bus, right? Those kinds of things. So guess what? It lends itself to these very public demonstrations, like sit-ins, like kneel-ins, which were prayer-oriented, uh, like boycotts, those kinds of things. So then that falls in its legalized form. There's still lots of segregation informally. But, um, but then our, our image of protest remains fixed yeah. on that. But here's the issue. We're not facing the same kinds of racism. Right. Racism always changes what I say in my first book, The Color of Compromise. Uh, racism never goes away, it adapts. Right. So our protest adapts too. Right. So the last thing I'll say about this is, if you're looking for where the church is, it's less institutional, it's more individual and collectives. Mm -hmm. So it may not be an entire denomination making a statement. It may not be a, an actual congregation or a church making a statement, but it will be the pastor of that church right. or the members of that church. Right. So I just got off of a, a Zoom call with 30 plus faith leaders from around the country talking about the war between Israel and Hamas. Right. And we heard from a Palestinian, we heard from a Jewish person who is uh, pro ceasefire right. and uh, pro peace, right? So these are a couple of dozens of faith leaders who collectively have influence over many thousands of people right. who you'll never see it on a headline. Right. Oh, this meeting occurred. Oh, this prayer happened. Oh, this strategizing has happened. But I, it is out there. Does it need to happen more? Yes, but it's there. You talk about, too, in the color of compromise, like the role um, that the church played in perpetuating. Yeah, some at home. big time, big time. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and kind of what led you to kind of explore that topic? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, because oh. um, I found that that's so like, you know, I was prepping, I was trying to get, get like, hey, this is, this is interesting, like, because it's a iffy, it's yes. like, it's a real mm, type of topic, like the church perpetuating racial discrimination and harm and, and like throughout history. Yeah. You really take a deep dive in that. Absolutely. So, uh, a lot to say. Number one, I want to talk to black people because a lot of times I encounter folks who think we don't need to study history. I already know this. I actually know you don't. Mm -hmm. What you know is your personal experience of racism and discrimination and that's valuable. We should tell those stories and explain them and uh, understand our, that dynamic. But history has the receipts. Right. So what I encourage black folk to do is study our history, the good, the bad and the ugly for the specifics. Yeah. So that's what, that's just a little soapbox to encourage folks who have experienced marginalization or oppression in some way. There's more to learn still mm -hmm. about 
why you're experiencing those things and that has a lot to do with history. You asked what got me into that topic. As my own personal experience was a big part of it. So one of the things I heard as a uh, graduate student in my PhD program, somebody said to me, all research is autobiographical. All research is autobiographical. So if you look into it, yeah. whether it's political science, sociology, mathematics, history, what the person studies typically intersects with their own personal story somewhere, yeah. right? So it, it's a woman who's in gender studies, who's experienced sexism in sports or the workplace or something like that. It's somebody like me who's experienced racism in the church and that's what I set about to study, right? Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. Like if yeah. you ask somebody with a master's PhD, you know, why did you study what you study? Yeah. I bet you it's because they went through something. So for me, I was in these predominantly white church settings. Um, and you have this string of events. Obama gets elected, the rise of the Tea Party in the midterms. You've got the, the murder of Trayvon Martin. You've got the killing of Mike Brown and Black Lives Matter. All of these things are happening. I'm starting to speak up about race. I started an organization called The Witness, right. a black Christian collection. So I'm writing about it. I'm podcasting about it. So I become a target. Yeah. And I'm like, what is this? What is happening? What's going on? We're supposed to be the church. We're supposed to be uni unified. And if it's justice and if it's racism, the church should be the headlight instead of the taillight, as Martin Luther King Jr. explained. But that wasn't the case, so I started looking into it. Come to find out that when it comes to the white church in the U.S., I mean, the reason why it is a white church yeah. is because they prioritized race over unity. Yeah. And mm. they were constantly, instead of confronting the racism in society, they were compromising with it and demonstrating complicity with it. So there's a whole long history that I write about in The Color of Compromise. What misconceptions uh, do you see people have about race and Christianity? Mm, yeah. When you're talking about it or just in conversation? I love that question. What misconceptions do people have about race and Christianity? The number one misconception is the, on the part of people of color and other marginalized groups that Christianity is the white man's religion. So Christianity has a 2000 year old history right. that actually even historically in sociology predates the categorizations that we call race. This is a 15th century uh, sort of eventuality in geopolitics that we started uh, classifying people according to skin color. So it's, right. it's, you've already had 1400 years of Christian history before that, right? right. So, so, so part of what we're doing is an anachronistic importing of this term race on 2000 years of history where that was never the case, right? The other part is Christianity comes to Europe later than the Middle East and North Africa. So really the genesis of Christianity is with brown-skinned people. Right. And then it gets to these light-skinned right. Europeans, right? right? And the deep theology, uh, theology around the Trinity and justification and all of those things, these are coming from brown-skinned folks. Yeah. And so to say that Christianity is the white man's religion is to totally ignore the history right. and the contributions before Christianity ever made uh, deeper inroads into Europe. That being said, um, another misconception is on the part of white Christians, what sociologists Michael Emerson and Christian Smith call the miracle motif. Okay. The miracle motif. That is the sort of like Billy Graham, stereotypical white evangelical approach to fighting racism. 
The miracle motif says, well, the primary concern is saving souls. Right. And so if, if, if people would simply convert to Christianity, then as they learn about Jesus, as they walk in the faith, as they go to church, racism will automatically go away. They'll become better people, and the more and more individuals we convert to Christianity, the less and less racism there is. Well, <laughs> that don't work. Right. That's not the case. That's why it's called the miracle motif, because you're yeah. just sitting around waiting for this miraculous epiphany, right? Um, what well, tends to happen is you play into the established social structure yeah. and you actually have to have these meaningful contacts with marginalized people groups to shift your perspective and start working for justice. How are we seeing, especially in, in, in white churches, right? Is there a sense of, what is a white privileged Christianity? <laughs> that's kind of what I'm getting to. What Bro. does white privileged Christianity look like? That's, that's something I really never, until this moment, really never thought about. Yep. White privileged Christianity. I like that term, white privileged Christianity. I think the apotheosis of it is white Christian nationalism. Okay. And white Christian nationalism is an ethnocultural ideology that uses Christianity as a permission structure for the acquisition of political power and social control. The reason why I say that's the apotheosis of white Christian privilege is because it's trying to enshrine in law white Christian supremacy. Yeah. So it wants to literally make supreme in this hierarchical sense a very narrow conception of Christianity yeah. that has its home and its genesis in white evangelical fundamentalism, particularly yeah. around uh, 1920s and 30s fundamentalist modernist debate, and then the 1950s and onwards neo-evangelicalism, and then gaining its real political footing in the 1970s with the rise of the religious right and the moral majority that has now morphed and shifted into Trumpism yeah. and what we see on the political scale nationwide. How do you reel those individual wins? Because, you know, I'm no, I didn't go to cemetery school. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't summon the Strongs and the Hebrew. I got you, I, yes. I, 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 didn't, I didn't study all that. But however, how do you have a conversation of real folks seeing, especially in our political legislation seats that is using Christianity? Mm -hmm. as a way to create policy. Mm -hmm. But if you read the Bible... If you read the Bible, it's different. It's, it's, all, <laughs> it's, it's like social justice is all throughout it. It's all there. throughout it, yeah. yeah, but, yeah. but they use this tool to do the opposite, take right. away rights, you know, kind of control humanity through that supremacy of Christianity through their lens. Mm -hmm. Have you had those conversations? Mm -hmm. What are those conversations usually yield <laughs> right right um, because you know we we i think we have a governor tennessee a governor lee that falls into that category Absolutely. says he's a very religious faithful man but his policies and the things that he endorses and perpetuates don't really go with the story that you know jesus that's right is kind of that's telling right. us and walking us through through the books so I heard somebody describe this season that we're in as a nation and especially politically as apocalyptic. Mm. And apocalypse in the classic, classic sense, apocalypse means to reveal. Okay. And so it's a revealing time. And one of the things that it's revealing, especially with uh, so-called Christian politicians, yeah. is that they were never really about the Prince of Peace, they were about the pursuit of power. Mm. 
And they use Christianity as a veneer for that, as a justification for, well, I'm right. And it goes beyond me that I'm right. God says that I'm right, right? So, so that's part of what we're dealing with. Yeah, so Slave masters did the same thing. Absolutely. There's yeah. so many justifications using the Bible to justify injustice um, right. and, and, and in ways that really don't look like Jesus at all. Hey. So one of the things you asked if I had conversation, um, sociologists and uh, social scientists are really helpful in this regard. So there's uh, the Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI. They've done study after study. One of the things that they found is there's a spectrum um, the, uh, of white Christian nationalism from staunch adherents to complete rejectors, right? The staunch adherents, the, the people on the extreme, are actually only about 10% of the population. Okay. But what they call the sympathizers are 19%. So people who wouldn't storm the Capitol. Right. But they're like, but the election might be stolen. Yeah. And we might need to, you know, have these lawsuits or, or get Trump back in power, whatever it might be. But yeah. collectively, that's almost 30% of the population. So it's a massive influence on the country. So who do you talk to? The 10% are not going to hear you. Right. They're just, it, 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 lift them up to Jesus, right? Right. But that 19% of sympathizers, there might be some wiggle room. So there are organizations like Faithful America, okay. like Christians Against Christian Nationalism, have some wonderful resources to sort of talk through people. But the last thing I'll say is what we're really dealing with in a lot of these cases, even with the sympathizers versus the extremists, is a, 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 a media ecosystem that is completely closed off yeah. from different perspectives yeah. and really accurate factual information. And until we can burst that bubble of Fox News, of YouTube videos, of podcasts that are far right, it's going to be really, really hard to to make inroads with people and persuade them of different perspectives. You have another book, <laughs> Fight Racism. Yes, um, and that's yeah, that's a great that's just a great question. How how do you fight racism, right? Um, and I want to oppose that to you because I think that's something people that want to get in this fight, they want to fight the justice, try to figure this out. Um, is how do we combat racism? How do we combat these social constructs that perpetuates? and lifts up and amplifies races. Right. Um, and I know you give some practical strategies in your book, but can you give us some on care or some advice for those who may want to get into that fight, uh, but still is like, hey, what, what can I do to combat racism? Um, do I have to be a PhD professor? <laughs> do I have to have a podcast? Do I have to you know, have a book? Like, right. What can I do with my daily life just to start and to explore options um, that I can kind of work on myself yes. to combat that in, in, in my own particular way. Here's what somebody, anybody can do right now if they're truly serious about fighting racism. You get yourself a sheet of paper or a blank document on the computer and you make three headings. One heading is awareness, one heading is relationships, one heading is commitment. And then I like bullet points. Some people want to write out the whole sentence. You can do paragraphs, that's fine. Then for each of those categories, awareness, relationships, commitment, you write out in the next three months, because I like short amounts of time, you can see progress and it forces some urgency to actually take action. In the next three months, what am I gonna do to build my awareness about racism, white supremacy, and injustice? Okay. So that's what books am I gonna read? What documentaries am I gonna watch? What 
conferences or panels am I going to tune into? Yeah. What are all those things that can build up my information and knowledge base about what we're dealing with? Because you don't want to try to get into something and you don't have an awareness right. of what the issues are. In that second category, relationships, all justice is relational mm -hmm. because it's about people. Yeah. So particularly if you're a white person, you want to think about, okay, how do I actually intentionally make sure that I'm not just around white people? Yeah. Because the flow of history has been white folks putting up walls and putting themselves behind barriers and keeping all other people of color away. So you actually have to actively work against that historical momentum. Yeah. And sociology tells us it's not just that one black friend, it's a network of people. So it's got to be multiple people. So, you know, churches you attend, schools you attend or where you send your children, um, where you live those kinds of things. For black folks and people of color, who am I in solidarity with? There's a lot of work to be done with uh, black folks and Latino folks and Asian folks and indigenous folks. How can we partner together because we're experiencing marginalization in distinct ways, but it, we're stronger together. And then lastly, uh, commitment. And I don't just mean stay the course. Yes, that. But what I mean by commitment is a commitment to changing laws and policies and procedures, the things that impact people on a larger level, not just individual relationships, yeah. but what, how, we're talking about voting. We're talking about criminal justice reform. We're talking about, uh, uh, you know, the, the racial wealth gap. You're talking about these bigger systemic issues. Yeah. You can't do everything. But what is something that you are really passionate about that you say, hey, I want to really pull on this lever and see if I can be part of the bigger change? So I have a, um, a new segment that I just started with WPLN, National um, Radio Company. It's called Diversity Segregate. Hmm. And we know, speaking of segregation, most major cities like Nashville is very diverse, but also very segregated. Like church. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I'm curious on... Because of many of us are diverse and segregated. And a lot of times I'm just not talking about diverse and segregated from just a skin color. Even that from a way of thinking, diversity, yeah. diversity of thought. Mm -hmm. We're around similar people that think like us, look like us, all the above a lot of times because we're so segregated and can sometimes to these major cities. When it comes to combating racism and trying to also combat being diversity segregated, what are some tools that people can they, what are some people with some strategies that people can maybe lean into? Because some people may not be like us. Like, we can just go in the community. We're going to try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Some people are like, I, I, don't, I don't know anybody. Mm -hmm. Really don't know anybody. My, my church is all black. My church is all white. Mm -hmm. My friends and my peers are all from the AVI community or whatever. All that next. Like, how do we combat when there's been like redlining and all these other things, social constructs that just kept us segregated? But on the surface, we look really diverse because, right. you know, we're, we're different people doing different things. Combat that. Right. In that particular way, uh, in, in, especially in major cities where we got a lot going on and I might see a different person at work, but that's where mm -hmm. it stops. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going back home, I'm going back to my community, mm -hmm. we're we'll generally going to look and think like that. Right. So those letters, D-E-I, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, the diversity comes first. And I think that's often how we think. Mm -hmm. We need to get different people together. We need to yeah. get them under the same roof, into the same church, into the same neighborhood. Yeah. 
that's good. I'm not denigrating that. But what, but what often happens is you stop, folks stop at the diversity piece. Yeah. And there's no equity, mm-hmm. which means sharing power, yeah. sharing resources. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the primary integration that has to happen is an integration of resources. Mm-hmm. So honestly, the history of this country is a history of wealth hoarding by which I mean material wealth, uh, that is concentrated, yes, among the very, very wealthy, the top 1%, but that also tends to be very, very racially divided too. So that, that, you know, there's this massive racial wealth gap between white and black and Latino and other people, right? So what happens is we end up getting integrated without bringing equal power to the table, without having an equal standing and an equal say. Yeah. That would shift if we have an integration of resources. Yeah. So black folks in my context, we need money because we never got the money we deserved from being enslaved for over two centuries. Yeah. Right. And so now we're playing catch up and some people have made it. But as a collective, we yeah. got a long way. To so the doctor, you look, check this out. This is and I, and I just started thinking about this a couple months ago. Thinking about labor, thinking about wealth. Yeah. Um, Black labor, white wealth. You um, think about allyship. Yeah. Right. And what you said, I think it's scary for people. Mm-hmm. For people that are not black. What happens when we don't have to lean on other people's resources? Yeah. And we don't have to be consumers of other people's resources. Yeah. Well, there be allies in it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, we've seen examples of this historically when we tried to have our black townships, black mm-hmm. economics, mm-hmm. where people were literally bought. Yeah. You know, yep. right? Yep. Um, people were literally killed. Like, towns were destroyed. Right? And that's... I'm not sure if the United States of America system will want that it will allow that. Mm-hmm. As much as people want to embrace diversity, the diversity of economics yeah. <laughs> yeah. is yeah. a different type of thing that I think our country would struggle with and those that claim to be allies would also struggle with when maybe the allyship is there because it has to be, mm-hmm. especially on the part of black folks because we don't have that economic power. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. really not have to deal with other groups and just practice community economics that we chose. I think there are two mindsets at play when we think about, you know, will this work? Can equity be achieved? Um, we can, from the jump, say no. A lot of people don't want that to happen. Uh, an integration of resources, as I put it. Why? Because the first fundamental mindset shift that has to change is there are too many people who think that flourishing is a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. If your ability to flourish increases, then mine must decrease. That's the thinking. And so if it's just that give and take, there's always somebody on top, always somebody on bottom. Well, I don't want to be on bottom, so I'm going to do everything I can to stay on top. It's a scarcity mindset. So that's one fundamental shift in thinking that has to occur. Everybody eats. Right. There's enough room at the table, especially in the richest country in the history of the globe. Right. 
for everybody to literally eat and have shelter and have health care and all of those things, right? So that's one mindset that have to change. Will it actually happen? Well, that gets to the other mindset that the longer I do this work, the more I see it has to shift. Yeah. Our work in justice is not primarily about winning. Yeah. It's about doing what's right. Mm. The test of our character is not, do we look at a justice situation, evaluate its yeah. chances of success and say, well, maybe there's a 51% chance that we'll be victorious and so I'll dig in. That's not the mindset. Yeah. The question, the fundamental question for anyone concerned about justice is what's right? Yeah. What is righteous? Yeah. And therefore, what must I do? There's no guarantee, I'm just sorry to say, yeah. there's no guarantee that we'll win. Yeah. There's no guarantee the law will pass. There's no guarantee the resources will be redistributed. There's no guarantee the minds will change. But it's not just about the change that we affect in the world. Yeah. It's about how this work changes us. And so that kind of answers like the, the next question I was going to leave with, because I think I struggle with this a little bit. Um, I'd love to get your take on it. When we're talking about a lot of times racism and the history and the pain, that's daunting to a lot of people. Um, how do you find out the way to talk about all of those things in a very strategically fact matter, but also inspire, pour and hold me a little, like, then what, what? There's a better future. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious because I, because, because I think I struggle with that a little bit and try to, to, to balance the, the realities with like the possibilities. Right, right, right. Uh, so I'm curious on how do you do that, and especially as you're speaking yep. in the whole conversation is about, you know, racism, justice, and Christianity and the intersection of it all and then people know like this is the harm that was that's been done and that's still be done in different ways. However, like there is a right. light at the end of the tunnel if we yeah, yeah. do this. That's a great question. You know, I think it's fundamentally a question about hope. How do you keep going, especially yeah. when it feels like it's one step forward, two steps back, right. oftentimes in justice work. Um, to which I say a couple of things. There's this principle in business about being in the gap versus being in the game. Mm -hmm. So being in the gap, you are constantly looking sort of at the horizon. And you're constantly looking at how far you have to go. Okay. And when you do that, it can be very deflating because honestly, you, you actually never reach the horizon. The horizon keeps moving forward as you keep moving forward. Right. And so if that's your goal, standard line measure, then you'll never achieve it, right? You'll right. never sort of even make progress. And, and when you get stuck in that gap mindset, yeah. then it's like, well, why even bother? I'm gonna just sit down right here because yeah. I'm not making progress. Instead, looking at the game, mm -hmm. you turn around and say, how far you've come. Yeah. No, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I once was. Yeah. That's on an individual level, even a societal level, right? Uh, John Lewis, uh, God rest his soul, the congressman and um, civil rights activist says, if you think we haven't made progress, walk a mile in my shoes. Mm -hmm. This is a man who had his skull busted. Right. The cranium is the hardest bone in the body, right. but a policeman's baton cracked his cranium yeah. and if he can say we've made progress yeah. then who am I to sit up here who haven't hadn't gone through a tenth of what he's gone through to yeah. say oh there's no hope we ain't doing nothing all this stuff I'm not minimizing the difficulty of it yeah. but hope is an action yeah. to me hope is not a feeling hope is doing and what keeps us doing is saying we're not there yet but we've come far 
and I'm building off of the momentum of the ancestors. To me, as a historian, yeah. there's a sense of responsibility yeah. to the struggle of the people who came before us not to quit and not to stop. Yes. So a lot of our stuff, it remains aspirational. It's yeah. up here, it's the dream, right? Yeah. But there is something in the human being created by God, God's fingerprint on them, which I call the spirit of justice, that won't let us quit. Yeah. And the difference between progress and, and, and failure, mm -hmm. and the only failure is not trying. Yeah. And we just need to people and be the people who refuse to quit. Uh, I ask you this, this very centric black question. <laughs> Um, many black folks, especially when it comes to hope and mixing Christianity, we say, hey, I want my heaven here on earth. Like, I don't want to have to die to get in heaven, right? I don't want to have to die to experience a great life. But I got to go through all of this racism, depression, marginalization to get there. Do you ever get pushback um, from black folks when you talk about the intersect intersection of of race and Christianity and the social responsibility mm -hmm. and the impact um, that one could have mm -hmm. uh, within the church. Uh, if one does not have faith anymore mm -hmm. that the church is doing anything for black folks or community or God in general. Yeah. Um, and looking back of, well, having that mindset of not looking back of like how much we gain, but looking like, hey, like we, we still in the same place, mm -hmm. the type of standpoint. Mm -hmm. What do you have that backlash or do you have those kind of more maybe contentious conversations uh, with black folks? Mm -hmm. Just folks in general, but mm -hmm. definitely black folks uh, around church. I do get that pushback. And um, what I find is <laughs> that it's coming from a place of hurt mm -hmm. and woundedness. Okay. They've been through something yeah. or some things that are making them say that. And we have to honor that and we have to give space for that. We have to grieve, we have to weep with people who weep, we have to lament. I think there's not enough room, particularly in the black community because we're constantly trying to simply survive, right? Simply navigate a hazardous social and political and economic environment. There's not a time really to pause and, and have these, these seasons of lament and yeah. grief and to say, I've been through some things, which by the way, is where church can often help <laughs> because you can cry out to God and you can cry out within a community. So to answer your question, yes, there is the pushback, but it's often not attached to some specific policy or reality. It's attached to the pain that people are still trying to grapple with and make sense of. Yeah. And on a human level, we need to give space to that. We need to come alongside and comfort one another. And then we need to sort of shift gears to say, okay, well, what do we do about it now? Um, I want to I want to close with this. Then I want to give you the opportunity to this. Let us know if you got something for. And I to update us. But the holiday season is coming, right? And there's going to be many people gathered, um, around family, friends, peers, um, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, and I think these conversations are important to have. Um, what family with friends, or it might be some people that have been wanting to talk about. Mm -hmm. They see the Facebook post and they've been waiting for Thanksgiving to come to address the person or a tweet to address the family member or friend because they know Thanksgiving Christmas. Um, 
How can people ensure these type of conversations that intersect faith and religion um, and justice uh, are still or inclusive, uh, are respectful, mm. yeah, respectful people's perspective of the experience. Mm -hmm. These conversations about race and justice and the church, all of it are difficult to have. The reality in any relationship is you can only control your own responses and your own emotions. So what we have to do is number one, be informed so we know what we're talking about because that actually gives us a sense of confidence. And when we're confident, we can chill. It's when we feel off balance that we kind of start to flail, right? And then we have to be, I would even run through scenarios of how this person might respond. They could respond surprisingly positively and say, oh, tell me more, I never knew. They can respond incredibly negatively, how dare you attack. They could respond somewhere in the middle of, mm, I'm not sure about that, but I like you, so I guess let's keep talking. How are you gonna respond in each of those situations, right? How are you going to prepare yourself, particularly emotionally, to receive whatever they're putting out and not put out negative energy yourself? That's sometimes the best we can, because nobody can guarantee somebody's gonna receive you. And most of these issues are not primarily intellectual, they're emotional and spiritual. So it's not about, you know, getting all the facts and data together, putting together your great debate case, right? Yeah. It's about demonstrating care, authenticity, respect with people. And these conversations are really hard. So if you've even decided to have it, yeah. like that's an incredible first step and you should feel proud. Now it's about regulating your own nervous system, your own response as you have that conversation. Dr. Tisby, I want to give you a chance now. You working on anything? You got anything coming up the pipeline? Then how can people, of course, find, find you, your work, uh, anything that you might else be working on? So, uh, first of all, I do all my latest writing and thinking on Substack. And so I'm, kind of, I'm writing articles two to three times a week. Just go to jamartisby.substack.com, jamartisby.substack.com. So that's the best way. Okay. Um, you can also buy the books. Yeah. So uh, those are available anywhere you get books. The first book, The Color of Compromise, was a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today bestseller. My second book, How to Fight Racism, won the ECPA award in the faith and culture category. My third book is an adaptation of How to Fight Racism for young readers ages eight and up. So you can buy any and all of those books wherever you get your books. Uh, this is me. Well, I appreciate you again. Thank you for the work that you're doing, the conversation that you're having, and like the very complex <laughs> uh, intersection with justice and faith that you're tackling, um, especially around racism and getting everybody in the mix and like getting everybody to kind of find that place and their social responsibility. So I'm glad that you're here. Yes, sir. Um, you're going to be at American Baptist College. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do your thing there. Um, so, good luck on that. Uh, but thank you again man, for your time. Oh, yeah, I appreciate you, brother. Great having, great being on the show.